I'm Lonnie Diane Rich, and this is How Story Works. And welcome to How Story Works from Chipperish Media. I'm story expert and author Lonnie Diane Rich. And if you love words, you are going to love today's episode. But first, I want to go ahead and give you a few updates about everything that is going on, both with the writing and a little bit outside of the writing. Um, so the novel that I'm working on, right? Uh, so I went through my drafting process. Y'all went through that with me. Then I went through like my six weeks of not looking at it, not touching it, not, you know, thinking so that I can put it away in a drawer and then come back to the revision process. And what is funny is that the six weeks went by and then things got a little busy for me, uh, just in general and personal and professional uh, spheres, a lot of things going on. And I just didn't get back to the book at the six weeks. And what is interesting is that the book started coming for me. Like it started, I would be watching something or, you know, engaging with anything and it would start creeping in at the back of my brain. I was taking notes and like just leaving them in my notes app because I can get to them later, but I just didn't have time now. Um, and so I, I find that funny because my usual advice is at least six weeks. Sometimes you need more. Sometimes you just need more time away from it so that you can really get that clear perspective on it for when you're doing revision one, which is the revision just between you and you and nobody else is involved. Nobody else should be involved. We are still in the uh, what's your favorite part part of like the feedback cycle where you can only ask people for what their favorite part is. You can only give them like one scene, not the whole thing. Um, and so, yeah, you're just looking for all of that positive stuff. We're not looking for anything critical until we've gone through and been our own reader, which is part of the revision one process. You are all writer and reader in that moment. And you're kind of going through that, but you got to take that time off so you can get the distance. Um, but what is funny is that I found the book on the six week marker coming for me. Um, I was thinking about it a lot. Everything I was engaging with was making me think about it. Um, I got a new car this week. So I've been doing a lot of driving around various appointments and yada, yada, yada. And uh, tell you about that in a minute. And while I'm driving around, if I'm driving in the car by myself, oh, my God, books come for me during that time. It's incredible. Uh, so one of the things, though, as the book has been coming for me that I have realized um, is that it is going to need a very serious, like huge overhaul revision um, because you know what I have? Oh, a week. Some might say non-existent. Uh, central narrative conflict. And so this is what I wanted to tell you. This is part of the reason why I like giving you guys the updates on my novel and my personal experience, because when I talk about this from a, you know, teaching you writing and creativity and all that kind of stuff perspective, um, it, I have that expertise. I'm talking about like the ideal situation, like this is how it works. But you also do really have to separate out the expertise that you get by using the how story works method from just the what you need to reach for to get that magic when you're actually writing so uh today's uh interview is of course with mignon fogarty of quick and dirty tips you might know her also as grammar girl uh, and we talk a little bit today about expertise and how sometimes having so much expertise can make it really hard for you to like go into the arena 
where you can screw things up, where publicly people can see you make a mistake. And the thing is, is that expertise is not about never making mistakes. Expertise is about understanding why the mistakes happened and how to deal with them and correct them. Um, but I also have like a very strong feeling about uh, perfectionism, uh, the idea that we do everything perfect on the first run and that's it, um, and that we never make a mistake and we are never in a space where anybody could possibly criticize us. Um, and I think that that happens to a lot of people because perfectionism is kind of part of the culture that we live in. If you're living in America, I can speak to that culture definitely in America. I'm sure some other countries also have it. Um, it is also one of the like uh, telltale uh, markers of a white supremacist society. So that's something to think about if you're if you're ready to think about that. Um, but the perfectionism is something that makes us so afraid to make mistakes that we don't do bold things in a society that I think wants to discourage us from doing bold things and writing a novel. It's freaking bold guys. So here's the thing. I am like, I'm an expert in story. I know how it works. I know all of this stuff. I've, you know, published 12 novels. Um, my name has been on the New York times bestselling list. I've won awards. All of that stuff doesn't mean that when I write my novel, I completely skip over the central narrative conflict, not a narrative conflict, the central narrative conflict, the thing that I teach other people about. And so as I'm looking at it, I found myself early in the drafting phase or after the drafting phase, when I would think about it, like I knew I knew my central narrative conflict was not strong um, and I would let it go. Because I wasn't really ready to think about it because part of me as an expert, I feel like I should do this better. And the fact is no one can do that better. The draft is the draft is the draft. It is a mess and it's supposed to be a mess. And I tell people that all the time, uh, but it is kind of a little bit of a challenge for me as I sit here in my little, you know, studio room talking to you. Um, as I sit here, I'm realizing that it's a challenge for me to be like, to admit publicly that like I screwed that up because as I am the one teaching everybody else, all of this stuff, I feel like I should be able to do it perfectly, um, from the outset. But what I'm actually teaching you right now in this moment is that no one does it perfectly from the outset. No one does. You go into your first draft and you blah all over the pages and get something down that you can work with. It is all about material that you can work with. That's it. Um, and then once you do that, then you can figure out, then you apply all of the strategies in the how story works theory. And um, that applies to you and that applies to me. And one of the things that I do during the beginning of drafting is I'm always like, I have to forget the theory. I have to forget the theory. I have to stop thinking about the theory. And the bottom line is that's impossible. Once you know something, you cannot unknow it. Um, but you can kind of unlive to it, you know. Um, and I tried doing that during drafting and I succeeded. And you know how I know I succeeded? Because I have no central narrative conflict. <laughs> And I'm figuring that out and I'm pulling that all together. But what I'm finding right now as the book is coming for me, that whereas in the beginning of my, you know, put it in a drawer phase of this program, right, I felt really nervous about going back to it because I knew, I knew that I hadn't done that, that part of the story particularly well. I was really nervous. I was really scared. Now I'm excited. And that's how you know when you're put it in a drawer process is ripe when you are excited to go back to it. 
Um, and for me, that is six weeks. For some people, it might be longer. For some people, it might be shorter. Um, but because it is so important that you build your own bespoke process for writing, that it is never about this worked for someone else. So I have to like force it to work for me, but that I'm going to create kissing every frog that is available to me. I am going to create something that works specifically for me. Look, if you were going to create a dress for yourself, you wouldn't use somebody else's measurements. This is something that you have to build for you in a way that works for you. And that means a lot of trial and error. It means that a process that works for you in one book may not work for you on another. Um, but it is definitely something that you have to keep working at and you have to keep going back to. And, you know, I've asked myself because I am the kind of person who tends to get bored with stuff especially once I've learned it, once I know it pretty well, I tend to get bored with it. The only thing that hasn't occurred uh, for me with is knitting. And I think it's because I'm doing, I'm creating a different project every time. Like I don't create the same project over and over again. I, I've knitted a lot of socks in my day, uh, but I'll do different strategies for knitting socks, you know, like anything just to make it different. Um, I get really into that. But I've asked myself a number of times, like, how is it that I'm not bored with stories and storytelling yet. And I think that that's why is because I'm constantly being surprised. Um, even though I know the theory of it, the experience of writing is always this um, incredibly like risky out there on a limb kind of experience. And apparently I really dig that. So that's the update on the novel. Um, by the next time I talk to you, I hope I will have gone back into it and at least figured out my central narrative conflict. As I often have inter internal central narrative conflicts. And I think that's what I was going for. But I, I think this one is external. And that's going to be a lot of fun to kind of build that with the characters that I have available and find a way to make that work. I'm super excited about it. Um, and I'm really glad that I'm excited. And that's another thing, too, to keep in mind. Um, sometimes your book is going to terrify you, but it's not always going to terrify you. There are times where you're going to get excited. And sometimes maybe it just means you got to give it a little, a little air to breathe like a little space, you know, um, the year of writing magically workshop, year of writing magically.com. Those applications are going to open up soon. Get on the mailing list. Now, if you are interested in doing that with me next year. Um, but the year of writing magically workshop is one year where you start the process. You work through the process. We get through discovery just fine. We start drafting. That's good. And then during drafting, it shifts. Like some people need more time. Most people need more time. Most people are working full-time jobs and, and doing other things and raising families and having other responsibilities and things that they want in their life. Um, so sometimes it doesn't happen. Sometimes life interferes. Um, but by the end of the year, you'll have both the community to write with, which I absolutely love about this, this year in the year of writing magically. Um, the first workshop, which has just been amazing is building that community with everybody. Um, and you'll also get a sense of how you write. Maybe you write one book every two years. Maybe that's how it works for you. I was thinking about that earlier. I used to write a book in like eight months, eight to 12 months when I was younger, not anymore. Um, and as I was going through and thinking about this book, I was like, oh my God, I only have until the end of the year. I only have until the end of the year. You know what? Maybe I don't. Maybe I need two years. Maybe I'll do the first half of my process this year. And then next year while teaching everybody else, I'll do the second half of my process. I don't know. We're going to see how it goes, but I'm going to give the book the time that it needs to bake and let the book lead me through this process rather than me trying to force it to live within these constraints that I have this idea in my mind of that's how it quote unquote should be. Um, 
It shouldn't be anything. It is what it is. And working with it as it is, um, is huge, huge. So if you can figure out how to do that, that's awesome. Um, another thing I've been doing lately, um, which has been taking up a fair amount of my time is uh, Baldur's Gate 3. Now, those of you who are not video game players, you may not be aware of this. You may not have heard of this, but it is um, it's a series that like the Baldur's Gate has been around for you know decades, like as as a um, as a storytelling world. Right. Um, and it's it's based in Dungeons and Dragons, you know, so it's very Dungeons and Dragons, you know, um, like game uh, setup and theory and all of that kind of stuff. It works in that way. Um, but. Baldur's Gate is one of the best storytelling video games I have ever played. Like I play, you know, I, I love uh, the Bioware stuff, Mass Effect, uh, Dragon Age. I've really enjoyed them. Um, and their storytelling is, is decent. Like it's decent. It's there. Um, Baldur's Gate 3 blows them out. I mean, out of the water. I cannot even begin to tell you. It is down to... Um, the acting and the writing in it is amazing. There is this narrator, um, who does like the, the narrations of what you're thinking in your head. Uh, she is beyond incredible. I believe her name is Amelia Tyler. Um, and I think if you look her up, like she, there are, there are some, um, they're completely spoiler free, but I recommend listening to them. Uh, she has a list of her outtakes from recording the stuff for Baldur's Gate 3. And I think that if you've played Baldur's Gate 3, you will really love them. Um, but if you haven't, it will probably sell you on the game because she's so funny. Um, but it's it's just really, really fun. It's incredible storytelling. If you are at all interested in storytelling in video games, I would highly, highly, highly recommend this video game. It is also an excellent thing. Like I find that engaging in narrative video games in my downtime in writing the book, like when the book is in the drawer, which is what it's been, um, that engaging Engaging in, in that is really, really helpful. There's something about video games that is just really helpful to me during that time when I'm in discovery and when I've got the book in the drawer, period. Um, and if you are a writer and you find yourself in one of those spaces, you know, I can recommend kissing the video game frog. I don't know if it'll work for you the way that it does for me, but you're not going to know if you don't try. And Baldur's Gate, regardless of whether it helps you with your book, I think the storytelling in it, the acting, the writing, even for the little, the barks, um, you know, which are like when you're walking down the street in the city and people are in the background saying things like even the barking is done so well in, in this video game. Like I, I am a I'm amazed by it. I'm playing through it. I put 60 hours into this game. I'm just in the third act now. And I know I'm planning to play it again and run a different storyline. Like, because you have a personal storyline that you can run. You have different people that you can romance. You have all of these things. Um, and I'm already planning my next run through. It's it's so good. Cannot recommend it enough. I don't even, I don't have a link. I don't have a, you know, like a re referral. I'm not making any, I'm not making a dime off of this. Just what I get out of this is the joy of sharing something that gives me joy. And I love that. You know, I love that. Uh, so I wanted to recommend that. Um, and also let y'all know, as I mentioned before, I got a new car. I'm very excited. Um, she is a uh, Honda Fit, a 2010 Honda Fit. There's only 100,000 miles on it. So I can, and the thing with the Honda is that you can ride it into the ground and it is a stick shift. And I haven't driven a stick shift in like 10 years. 
Um, and I probably won't get a chance to drive one again because they're not really making them anymore. So I saw this car. I was like, oh, my God, I love it. Um, it's Blackberry Pearl. So it's like this pearlescent sort of very dark purple in the sun. Um, absolutely love that color. Everything on it is awesome. And, you know, it's older. Like it doesn't have it doesn't have a backup camera. Doesn't have CarPlay. Doesn't have a little, you know, um, it doesn't have a little screen in it, like any of the fancy stuff. Um, but I actually really love it. It's a it's a decent car. It's in good shape. It'll last me for a very very long time. Um, so I'm really excited about uh, about having that car. And um, and now I'm tootling around, you know, Denver in a little uh, herky jerky uh, stick shift as I get used to driving with a clutch again because it's it's a skill set and you got to learn your car. You know, every car is different, and once you learn your car, it's it's super super easy. But like when I first started driving, it, I was like, oh yeah, I forgot about this part where it just herks and it jerks because you don't have the clutch to acceleration ratio just right. So I'm I'm working on that, and it's been a lot of fun. Um, so that is everything. Those are all the updates for me. Now, why don't we get into the thing you came here for, which is listening to the interview with, yes, Mignon Fogarty. Uh, Mignon Fogarty, a.k.a. Grammar Girl, is the founder of the Quick and Dirty Tips Network and creator of Grammar Girl, which has been named one of Writer's Digest's 101 Best Websites for Writers multiple times. She is also an inductee in the Podcasting Hall of Fame. She's been on Oprah. I talked to somebody who was on the Oprah show. I'm very excited about that. Um, and Grammar Girl, you know, was one of the first podcasts I ever listened to, like way back in 2006. I started my first podcast, Will Write for Wine, in 2007, off of my inspiration from listening to Mignon. And I am so excited to get to share this interview with you today. Mignon, of course, in, you know, in real life, when you're interacting with her, is exactly as lovely and kind and smart as you would expect based on her personality on the podcast. Um, she was such a joy to talk to. And I was so grateful that she um, she gave me some of her time so that I could share this with you guys. So I'm going to go ahead and pop on out. I'm going to run that interview and I'll be back on the other side. Well, Mignon, I have to tell you, I am so excited to be talking to you today. You are the reason that I started podcasting. I started listening to podcasts like 2006, 2007, and you were one of the first people on the scene. And you were talking about writing. You were talking about words. Like, I love your passion for words and language and all of that, because, you know, there are a lot of people who don't really care when you start nerding out about words, but I could always count on you. Whenever I listen to your podcast, I always could count on that. I love it. Amazing. I love to hear that. And thank you so much for having me on. You know, podcasting has been my life for more than 17 years now. And I just love hearing yeah. that I turned other people onto it too. That makes my day. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think you've probably, you know, the voice that launched a thousand podcasts. I think you were so early on the scene and you had such a brilliant idea in this like quick and dirty thing. Right. You know, just come in, get the tips and move on about your day. Um, I absolutely love that. And I also completely love that you're still doing it. And still owning that space. Like, it, it, that's amazing that you've been able to do this for so long. Um, how, how are you, like, liking that that process and being, like, one of the, like, OG podcasters on the scene? It's always fun. And, you know, it's funny. <laughs> when I started, I thought I was too late. And, you know, way back then, I know, it's hilarious. And then, you know, I never... I never thought I'd be doing it this long. I thought maybe I'd do it for three, maybe four years. But, 
Mm-hmm. It's fun. I love it. The The audience still seems interested. The show's a little different. When I started, it was, yeah. you know, maybe three minutes long and it was a quick mm-hmm. and dirty writing tip, how to use a semicolon, mm-hmm. the difference between which versus that, <laughs> you know, very much the prescriptive <laughs> writing advice. And mm-hmm. over the years, the show has gotten longer. It now has t- two segments, well, three segments, if you count the family story at the end. Mm-hmm. And usually one of them is more of a gee whiz isn't language cool kind of segment. Yeah. Uh, you know, recently we talked about retronyms, which are Oh, I loved that. Yeah, words that are the, uh, you know, uh, manual transmission. Well, that used to be the only Mm -hmm. kind of transmission. You didn't have to specify. Um, So manual transmission, um, you know, what else? Uh, Acoustic. Oh, you taught me snow clones. Snow clones. Yes, snow clones (laughs) are um, those. uh, They're they're a type of cliche. It's a sort of... um, you know, as you fill it, it's like a fill in the blank phrase, mm-hmm. like um, X is the new Y, orange is the new black, pink is the new green, right. you know, I lo- <laughs> yeah, I love those two. And, you know, so we talk about fun things like that now mm-hmm. as well. So that's one way that, you know, we've continued to make the podcast interesting for the listeners and me <laughs> over time. <laughs> I love it. I love the way that you approach it. And there are things like snow clones, retinence, like those things that like, especially if you're a writer and you work in language, you kind of pick them up through osmosis in the culture, but you don't realize that they actually have like a history and there's study on them and these these functions, uh, you know, have a name. And that's one of the things that I absolutely love about your podcast is that when I listen to it, you will be like retronyms and I'll be like, ha, what's that? And then I'll be like, I know what that is. And now you've given me a name and a and a context for it and i i mean as a language nerd like your podcast is one of my favorite things uh, one of the one of the like little joys that i can know is going to come you know on a regular basis it's really nice thank you so much and it's sometimes i joke that the i do the podcast just because my husband gets tired of my word stories you know every day oh, right. i i'll be th- <laughs> walking along and i'll think of like nifty that's an odd word why do we call things nifty and then i'll look it yes. up and and I just have to tell someone. <laughs> you know? I know. It's amazing. Oh, one of the things you were talking about just a, a minute ago was like that kind of proscriptive element to the way, you know, we talk about grammar and we talk about language, um, that there are rules and this is how it works. And that's that. And usually there's like two sides of that debate. One is words mean something and this is what they mean. And that's it. And the other one is like language is a fluid and living thing. And I think that there is you know, I'm more on the fluid and living thing kind of evolving, you know, sort of space. But I think that like the whole point of language is that we all agree on what things mean, you know, like the idea of literally being figuratively, like becoming figuratively is the sort of thing that broke a lot of people's brains. (laughs) But there, you know, so where do you land kind of on that spectrum? Oh, it's tough. I mean, over the, especially over the years. So I think I started out as more prescriptive and I've become Mm -hmm. more descriptive the more I learn about language and how fluid it is Mm -hmm. and the history oh my gosh if you read about the things that people found objectionable a hundred years ago it's hilarious (sighs) and it makes you realize they're ridiculous so we're probably ridiculous now too (laughs) you know (laughs) people used to think it was just an outrage to call curtains drapes 
for example, you know, who would have thought like, you don't even think about that now, things like that. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, today people, um, complain about adulting, you know, some people think adulting sounds ridiculous. I kind of like it. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, but in the sixties, seventies, people thought about the word parenting the same way we think about adulting today. (laughs) Parenting was a new trendy Vogue word until parenting Mm -hmm. magazine launched and made it sort of mainstream and popular. So again, you know, a lot of people probably don't remember that or weren't even alive at the time, but it's almost a perfect parallel. And so maybe we shouldn't get so worked up about adulting. (laughs) Oh, no, certainly. And one of the things, too, that I think I see that reflected in is like uh, modern technology and communications. Like, for instance, my children of that generation, they don't use like uh, periods and punctuation in their texting. They just text. And oftentimes they won't use like capitals or anything like that. And so like one of the things that they have let me know is that because all of my texts are grammatically perfect, unless I have just managed to like skip an autocorrect, you know, fumble, like they they're like that really tags you as an old. And I'm like, well, I am an old, (laughs) so that's okay. Um, But one of the things that I, I have found kind of mirroring the way that like our textual language has evolved is the way like our social media languages have evolved, like that we'll have social media that starts up like when Twitter first started up, we had people using those 140 characters. Yes, back in the day, I'm an old, it was 140 characters. Um, And you'd have 140 characters. And because of the limitations of the way in which particular social media allow you to communicate within those limitations, people would be really creative and find different ways to talk. And so do you see, I mean, is that just me or do you see kind of a a communicative reflection in the way that language evolves and the way that social media languages evolve for particular formats and platforms. Right, certainly. Well, I recently had a super interesting interview with Florence Hazrat, who wrote an entire Mm -hmm. book about the exclamation point. And one (laughs) of the things that she was just a revelation to me is she explained why we don't need periods in text messaging. And it's because when you hit send, that is the equivalent of a period. It It signifies in just no uncertain terms that that is the end of your message. So it's, you would even say the period is redundant. And I had Mm -hmm. never thought about it that way. So I thought that was so fascinating. Um, You know, you talk to people who study language or in, you, you just learn like these, these things that you didn't know or didn't think of. And of course, um, you know, they're just, you know, um, like cat language. There's someone who has a book out about the way we talk about cats and I haven't read it yet, but I'm looking (laughs) forward to it. And you know, they called them instead of dialects, she I think she calls them perlects. Um, you know, and there are entire <laughs> internet cultures that have emerged around just these funny words that we use to talk about cats yes. and dogs. And, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, just, so there it is fascinating the way these language communities evolve and and have their have their own grammar. Like you can get it wrong. Like I, I might be yes. wrong saying per elect. It might be something that I'm remembering <laughs> differently, and that would be wrong. It's not. So there are rules to it, which I think a lot of people mm-hmm. think it's just silly and random, but often it's not. Yeah, it is. I mean, uh, and communications, I mean, in itself, like the ways in which we communicate all the media that have evolved in the last, you know, and and if you're talking about human history, like this is a very short period, like last 150 years, we're talking phones, photography, uh, film, television, you know, and now we're in this internet space, like with everything evolving so quickly, 
um, I find it fascinating to see languages evolve in particular spaces, like almost overnight. And once you understand how to utilize, you know, those subtle little things, you know, um, it really is a kind of a fascinating time to be alive, especially for somebody who studies language. Like I, you never run out of stuff to talk no, about. No, never. <laughs> I thought I would, but I don't. <laughs> Another interesting thing you made me think of when we talk about prescriptive versus descriptive and language change. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been running lately these polls on my Facebook page and we had a really interesting one last week about the word commentate. So, Ooh. yeah. So, you know, we talk, there are sports commentators and sometimes mm-hmm. they are referred to as commentating instead of commenting. Mm-hmm. And and that's a sort of a controversial usage. And so I did a poll and the the results surprised me in that, um, you know, obviously some people loved it, some people hated it, but a number of people did talk about, um, they have a different meaning. You know, the, the words have evolved to mean different things and commentating mm-hmm. is not commenting they're different but still enough people despise the word that (laughs) i can't in good conscience as someone who gives advice on what words people should and shouldn't use i just feel like i can't go out there and say it's fine to use commentate even though i agree with the people who say yes it's logical it has a different meaning it's actually formed in the same way we get the verb edit first we had editors Mm -hmm. And then that got shortened into a back formation to the verb edit and commentate Uh is identical. It's formed the same way you should, we should be able to use commentate as a verb, but about 75% of the people hate that word. (laughs) So, well, yes, the same way they hated parenting and adulting. And like we do. And I think there's a certain thing too, is that like when you, when you learn something, right, you're like, I know this, it's done, I can stop thinking about it, right? And language doesn't allow you that space, because language is constantly evolving. And if you want to use it, if you're a writer, mm-hmm. and you want to use language, you know, and it's it, to like the extent of its capabilities, you have to be willing to get fluid with it. And I like to think as I get older, that that ability to embrace the fluidity of language is keeping my brain plastic, mm-hmm. you know, like elastic that I can keep moving, you know. Um, and so I'm hoping that that will end up in the long run to be a benefit for me. But as you're talking about things people hate with language, um, I, you know, everybody has little pet peeves about stuff. And I have pet peeves about stuff that I don't know that I can fully justify, but certain uses of language that drive me crazy. Like one of them is... Trials and tribulations like that is something that the second somebody uses that phrase, I'm like, you know, you're instantly suspect to me like I am not or as the kids would say, sus. Right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, But I am an old. So I say the whole word suspect. Um, And so I find but like as I look at it, I'm like, I don't. I don't personally like to tell people what language they can and cannot use Mm -hmm. (laughs) because I feel like. People have different ways of expressing themselves. And for some people, trials and tribulations is a, an expressive thing. To me, it is redundant and beyond cliche. Now, that's one of mine. Now, I am asking you on this podcast, do you have something like that that drives you crazy? But you're like, all right, people can. You know, I do. I do. I hate <laughs> it when people use while to mean although. Uh, you know, oh. To me, while has a sense of 
at the same time, it has a time element. Mm-hmm. It's not a con- concessive conjunction, you know, but, um, and so I used to change it every time I, you know, I was an editor before I was grammar yes. girl and I would change it mm-hmm. all the time when I saw it. And then when I went to investigate it, I found that it's not a real rule. <laughs> you know, like you're, you're really like, there are times when it can cause mm-hmm. ambiguity and you shouldn't use it then. Yes. But other than that, Everyone agrees it's fine. So I stopped changing <laughs> oh, yeah. it in my editing. <laughs> right. Different from and different than. Yeah. Absolutely makes me insane. And I always want to correct when everybody, whenever anybody says different than. But then, like, in the end, I'm like, do I understand what they mean? You know, and I think that those rules are different. Like if you are editing someone for a publication, if you have Chicago AP or something like that, that you really need to live with, if you're doing something that is in a kind of a more proscriptive place like journalism and and publishing and all of that, like I think that that's different. But when we're in like regular conversation or I'm writing an email or somebody is emailing me, I will find myself doing those little edits and being like, this is such a waste of energy. Yeah. Like, I just need to stop. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I don't. I, and it's so funny. People email me and often they'll ap- write back later and apologize. Like, I found a typo in my email. I'm so sorry. You must have been horrified. And I'm like, I didn't even notice. <laughs> you know, I, I read email as fast as everyone else does. And I'm not there looking right. for everyone's errors. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, the ultimate purpose of everything, right, is clarity, you know, and I think that like for most of us, you can you can achieve clarity regardless of whether you're in this deeply prescriptive space or in this more fluid space. It seems to me like in the more fluid space, what you get are those subtleties of meaning and nuance that sort of come into this like like my kids telling me that the period on the end because it is redundant actually is is mildly aggressive Mm -hmm. like like it it kind of signifies annoyance or even sarcasm or whatever and that is such an interesting nuanced space to be in and sometimes you can be in a space that has nuance and have absolutely no idea you know that what you're doing has that. And I, I I think that's part of what makes me continue to, to just absolutely be uh, fascinated by and in love with language because it will surprise you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's always that danger of using an emoji that means something that you don't know that it means. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew the eggplant would come to mean what it has meant? Right. I'm just, I'm just um, gardening here. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. And I do the old, I mean, as again, I'm an old, so like I do the, uh, the colon and then close parentheses for like the smiley face Mm -hmm. that before we had emojis, that's what we did. And I do that. I mean, so constantly, like I use the smiley face all the time to show that I'm joking, that I'm happy, that everything's just fine. Because I'm always like, sometimes the way that you phrase things like can be read in ways because there's no body language, there's no vocal intonation, there's nothing else except the words that when you are doing purely text communications, I'm so careful about it. But I find that I use them so much that one emoji, that one little, oh, what is it? Was it called an emoji when you just uh, use called, the text for it? Is there it's an emoticon. Emoticon. Yeah. There we go. Um, so I find that like also really tags me as an old, which is fine. Um, but I find that so interesting that I almost do it without thinking at this point, like certain emojis, certain expressive things so that we can 
you know, say these things that we want to say in a particular right. way. And did you know that there's actually a distinction even between different kinds of smiley face emoticons? Because if you put a nose in your emoticon, it signals that you're even older. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I mean, like generational language expressions. Like, I don't think that that is something that has probably happened, like so much has happened in language so quickly in these last, like, even if you talk about just the last 20 years, so much has happened. That keeping on top of it is a constant, you know, evolution. It's a constant moving space of expertise. And I'm just like, I'm so happy for you that you get to work in that place. too. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it, I, I feel like, you know, we're seeing so much more writing that used to be private, we're seeing it public. You know, I think a lot of, mm -hmm. you know, posts on social media are kind of the equivalent of how we used to pass notes or leave yeah. post-its for some, you know, a family member or something. Mm -hmm. I think, I don't think necessarily that language has gotten more informal. I think we're just seeing a lot more of the informal language we didn't see before. Exactly. Exactly. All right. So people come to you and they listen to you a lot of times, either because they're obsessed with language or because they want to get better yeah. because they're worried about their writing and maybe their writing, they don't feel as strong enough. Um, so oh, after all of these years of giving people advice on how to improve their writing, what would you say is like the one most powerful thing people can do to improve? Oh my gosh. One, the only one thing <laughs> <laughs> I think I would have to say would be reading your work out loud after you're done with it, because that helps you catch not only typos and potential errors, but just awkward phrasings. Um, mm -hmm. But I have to, another one. Okay. Another, I, I yes. have to have two. The other, you can have up to five. Okay. <laughs> Mignon, you can have whatever you want. <laughs> also to look up, look things up if you aren't sure. So, you know, before, mm -hmm. if you want to, if you want to not just like find errors, but to actually improve, I would say mm -hmm. that that is to look things up because I did the same thing yes. before I was grammar girl. If I didn't know exactly how to use a word, I would write around it. You know, if I didn't know the mm -hmm. difference between affect and effect, I would write a whole new sentence to avoid the problem. Yes. And, you know, once you if you look up something once every day or two, you're expanding your knowledge so much. And it's addressing the writing topic that you personally have a problem with. So it's, very, mm -hmm. it's a very targeted way of improving your writing, too, is to if you if you find something and you're unsure, just go look it up. It's so easy now with, you know, dictionary.com, Merriam-Webster, Grammar Girl, we're all online. It's it's very quick to find the answer to whatever your question is. <laughs> Yeah. And it's so interesting, too. Like, I will find that I'll have an issue with something that I don't quite understand. And then I'll go and I'll look it up and I'll use it fine then. And then I'll have to go and look it up again. Like, I need to cement that knowledge through a number of uses before I really feel that I've absolutely nailed it. Um, and I think, like, the willingness to revisit things that you think you've already learned and kind of like take a look at them even when you think you know like to look it up and to and to to get that and not and not worry about it like I don't think that you know mistakes in mistakes in you know especially the more casual you know like a quick email or a text message or whatever like you know it's it's completely fine and people shouldn't I think people who are insecure about their writing sometimes feel 
frozen by these quick informal communications that they're worried is going to make them look dumb. Like when they get to you and they're like, oh my God, a typo, Mm -hmm. you know? And like, honestly, like I don't judge anybody's typos. I have a million of them. Like everybody has typos. There's no way to avoid it. Um, But, uh, but one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about um, is email. Mm -hmm. Like, okay. Email when it started out, I remember like because I used to write, you know, like old handwritten letters that you would then like address and put a stamp on and send it like through the mail and it would take days to get to somebody. And then email came along and it became this big personal source of communication, like this easy letters back and forth, which now have moved into text messages with people that I actually know. And now email feels like it has become mostly spam and and stuff like it just ends up do you think it's it's possible that email is going to in itself become like an obsolete form of communication um what are your feelings on email oh wow wow i really don't i actually i just mm-hmm. um launched a a writing email course on linkedin learning <laughs> so i really hope it doesn't become archaic uh, <laughs> well you'll save it i'll save it <laughs> and it's it's popular it's actually my most popular mm-hmm. course there i can imagine yeah. yeah so i mean i think email is i kn- i know that kids today you know don't use email and mm-hmm. only use it when forced mm-hmm. like for school and stuff but um right. i think it still has a huge role in the business world um yes. it's a way it's just an easier, more efficient way of documenting conversations than Slack mm-hmm. still, you know, yeah. and things like that. It's, it's just a way of having, you know, longer but contained information where you can attach. I mean, I know you can attach documents in a Slack too, but, um, yeah. you know, it's just, it's still very prevalent in the business world. And, and I feel like it mm-hmm. serves a purpose that, mm-hmm. um, you know, teams and Slack and things like that don't. So I don't see it going away in the business world very often. And I still use it for just general communication more than texting and, and Slack and things. I mean, mm-hmm. I have my family text groups and my friends Slack and things like that, yes. but I still, even for, you know, peripheral you know, not business things, but things that are beyond my very close friends and family. Mm-hmm. I still d- email is the default. So yeah, I Email tends to be. Yeah, it's it's an interesting seeing the way that it has evolved over the years, because I, of course, existed before email existed. So I remember a life before it, right. <laughs> like what communication was like and how much easier it does make everything. Um, I find it fascinating. Um, I love that you're doing an email course on LinkedIn learning. Uh, tell me about the other things that you're doing on LinkedIn learning. Yeah, no, it's this amazing thing that's grown to be a big part of my work. So um, I have a grammar foundations course. It's about I think it's about an hour and a half long made up of three or four minute videos on different grammar topics. And, you know, that also is popular on LinkedIn. And then I have a punctuation course, a commonly confused words course. I have my very first course that's just called quick and dirty tips for better writing. And that's just in the beginning, that was like, they were like, give us your 15 or 17 the best tips you have, you know? And I was like, great, I can do that, you know? Mm -hmm, And I'm mm -hmm. currently working on um, two more, one about um, plain language, which is, you know, the government has a plain language mandate in the United States. Mm -hmm. So there are rules and guidelines for following that. So 
to help mm-hmm. people get up to speed on plain language. And then I'm doing advanced grammar, which is building on the grammar foundations course. So yeah, by, you know, in six months, I'll have seven courses on LinkedIn learning. So it's become a really big part of what I do. And I really enjoy it because it also, you know, yeah. the videos are so short. It's really getting back to my roots of those qu- yes. the quick and dirty tips. So mm-hmm. it's been, it's been a lot of fun to, to get back to that. I love that you're doing that. And I find that like, we're not, I'm not sponsored by LinkedIn learning or anything, but I think that it is such a wonderful space to go when you, I mean, you know, a lot of times you can go to YouTube, but you don't know that those people actually know what they're talking about. Anybody can make a video and give you any kind of nonsense advice on YouTube, you know, but through LinkedIn learning, you really are getting to the people who have the expertise and can actually help you you know, like figure this stuff out. So I just have to say, I recommend LinkedIn learning like tremendously to anybody out there who doesn't have it. I believe they do have a trial if you haven't tried it. Um, but I think it's absolutely amazing. Yeah, I, um, they have been, yeah. I would say they have been incredible to work with. They are really professional and great, nice, great people. And that's one of the things I love too, is that it, there are so many ways to get the courses free. So they have the 30 day free mm-hmm. trial and often that you can get them free through your university or county library. So mm-hmm. I love, I love making something people can get free. <laughs> That's accessible. Exactly. Because especially when you you're in love with something, you love what you do and you, you know, you really have that expertise, you want people to have access to it. You know, so I mean, those are all really wonderful things. Um, Okay, so now you've done all this stuff, like you've accomplished all this, you're author, you're an editor, you've done the Grammar Girl podcast forever. And it's just been such a huge, massive success. You're doing the LinkedIn learning. I am curious. What's out there that you haven't done yet that you think you might like to do? Yeah. Yeah. I am. Um, I, I would really like to write fiction someday. Oh, I have dabbled. Yeah. I have dabbled for 10 years and there, <laughs> you know, I, I just, I have, I haven't really tried because there's always something mm-hmm. new, you know, LinkedIn comes to me with courses and there's another yeah. book to write. And, you know, I, every time I set aside time to do it, something more obviously exciting comes up. You know, I worry with fiction Mm -hmm. that, you know, nobody wants it until it's finished and (laughs) maybe I'll be really bad at it and I'll waste six months or a year on this project, you know? And so when someone comes Mm -hmm. to me with something that's more of a sure thing, I always take it, but at some point, some it's a bucket list thing. And at some point I am going to do that. (laughs) Oh, honey, I'm your girl. When you're ready. Let me know. I will give you everything you need to get started and give you all the encouragement that you need. I that's honestly, that's my thing. That's what I do is I get people to write and create. Um, and just to like, here's the thing, like one thing. And again, the most powerful thing like that I could give, even though this isn't an interview with me, but whatever. And all the people listening to my podcast have heard this before. But the, the thing is, the best thing that you can do is not care if it's good. If you're going to write fiction, that's the best thing you can do. Don't care if it's good going because you can edit and you can like fix anything that's broken in the editorial um, time. But that drafting time when you're just putting your first draft together, you have to go in with the deliberate intention of writing just crappity crap crap. That will change your life. I can't do it. It's hard. I know. (laughs) No, especially as someone who has spent all of her professional life, most of your professional life, telling people how to do things correctly. The idea of going in and writing crap could be absolutely terrifying, but it will change your life. Yeah. So reach out to me anytime you want to talk about it. I will absolutely watch. Okay. Thank you. Um, Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Of course. Um, All right. So uh, you can only have one flavor of ice cream for the rest of your life. What do you choose? Chocolate. (laughs) Just chocolate. (laughs) 
That's easy. Um, nice and simple. Nice and simple. I love it. Okay. And then my final question, this is how I end all of my interviews with everyone, is what is your favorite part about what you do? Oh, my, that's easy too. My favorite part is learning, continuing to learn new things all the time. I love, I love that my job is essentially learning new things and then getting pe- to tell people about the cool new things I've learned. <laughs> I love that. That's a perfect thing to end on. Oh my God, you guys, how fun was that? Isn't she wonderful? I had such a good time talking to her. I'm a little bit starstruck. I'm not going to lie. Thank you so much to Mignon Fogarty for joining me today and talking about language. And it was so fun. I absolutely loved it. If you aren't already a huge fan of Mignon and have her site bookmarked, head out to quickanddirtytips.com and do that now. And her podcast is a must listen for anyone who loves language. And if you're listening to a podcast called How Story Works, I'm guessing you are a person who loves language. In other news, I am giving away free writing consultations. If you're willing to come on the show, talk to me about what's going on. I won't be able to read all of your stuff and talk to you about your story specifically, but definitely you can come in and talk to me about what's going on with your writing. You can tell me about the story and I'll give you some feedback on that. Um, We can talk about whatever you want to talk about. But if you've ever wanted the chance to chat with me about writing and about what you're going through and what you're struggling with, definitely get in touch at Lonnie at LonnieDyanRich.com. But if you're shy, paid consultations are available through LonnieDyanRich.com under Writing Services. Also, I have a new How Story Works website at HowStory.Works, and it is brand new. So it's still propagating through the Internet. For a couple of days, it might give you a site not secure warning. But very soon, everything I'm doing for and with writers will be found through HowStory.Works. So that's where the Year Writing Magically is going to be. That's where my writing services, my writing consultations are. Um, That's where I'm doing basically all of my stuff. I had a uh, marketing professional uh, kind of give me some advice and tell me all the things I was doing wrong. And y'all, I'm doing a lot of things wrong, but now I'm going to get them right. Also, just so that y'all know, I am filling up my 2024 calendar for writers groups. If you have a writers group in the United States, um, I will probably drive to you. I will come to your writers group and hang out with you and do a workshop and whatever. So if you would like me to come to your writers group, uh, just email me, Lonnie at LonnieDineRich.com, and we can definitely chat. My marketing uh, services professional told me I had to make cold calls and emails, um, and I am not ready emotionally to do that. So this is what I'm doing. <laughs> so if you want me to come out to your writers group, I will do it. I'll also do it on Zoom if you don't want me to come out. You want to save some cash and get me on Zoom? You can definitely do that as well. Um, but yeah, give me reach out. Let's chat. It'll be fun. And then go visit howstory.works. There's no dot com. We're, we're moving past that. That's passe. Um, howstory.works. You can find that on the internet and go check it out. I'd love to hear what you think now that I've taken the advice of like, you know, marketing professionals. So, all right, that is it for this episode of How Story Works. I'll be back next month. In the meantime, Follow me on Blue Sky at LonnieDianRich.bSky.social. Um, I have absolutely given up on the space that used to be the bird uh, for a lot of reasons, but I just, I can't. You know that moment? You just cannot anymore. That's where I am. So follow me on Blue Sky. Blue Sky is where I'm going to be. That is going to be after flirting and getting my namespace on all the socials. That's where I'm going to be. So come hang out with me there. Thanks for hanging out with me today. I look forward to bringing you more stuff next month that I don't know what it's going to be yet, but it'll be something cool, probably, because I like to do these things at the last minute. And in the meantime, this is how story works. 